Hi, it's Lori. Today I'm bringing to hike the story of two women, Fidget and Neon. It's their story of traversing across the Americas, and they are doing a human-powered trek connecting stories of the land and its inhabitants from the very tip of South America to the tip of North America. So this was a very cool conversation. I'm excited to bring it to you. They had both just come off of the Great Divide Trail and uh, were spending some time decompressing after that hike and allowed me to interview them. While we do talk about the Great Divide Trail, this is much more than a story about a specific hike. It's really their journey. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation to really get behind what inspires both of them to get on the trail, what it's like to hike together, and the stories that they bring uh, with them and through them as they traverse across the Americas. So let's get into my conversation with Bethany and Lauren, also known as Fidget and Neon. I am here today with Bethany and Lauren. Nice to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Nice to be here. So where um, where are you guys calling in tonight at? Uh, you are in what part of the country? We've actually just crossed back into the U.S. from the northern border, and we're hiding out along the high line of Montana for uh three-day decompression session that we do after each stretch of travel. You know, Montana's not a bad place to hide out at. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. I love it. I love it. I love Montana. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess let's, let's talk about, well, obviously you just got off of a hike, so that's exciting and can't wait to dig into that. But first, maybe a little bit about you and, you know, uh, your background uh, and, how you met, which uh, I believe was on a trail. So I'd love to hear that story. For sure. Um, My name is Lauren, or my trail name is Neon. I grew up actually on the East Coast in Pennsylvania and have since moved out West to work for wilderness therapy programs and um, just kind of enjoy life a little bit more in depth or more in the wilderness. And I first through hiked in 2008 with the Appalachian Trail. And then in 2010, I did the Pacific Crest Trail, which is actually where Fidget and I met. Um, And then um, went and worked for Wilderness Therapy Program in Utah for a couple of years and then did the Colorado Trail. And then in 2013, Fidget actually was my resupply person along the, the Continental Divide Trail when I through hiked that. And then, yeah, in 2015, I committed to her idea that she'll tell you about in a second that um, about this traversing the Americas. And we headed out in November of 2015. Uh, my name is Bethany Fidget Hughes. I at the age of, I was born in the U.S. in the exciting town of Shawnee, Kansas. And at the age of four, 
my family, when I was four, my family moved to South America. So I actually grew up in the Andes in Ecuador and Chile, and then we're in the Dominican Republic. Um, so I grew up as a third culture kid. And then through my teenage years, I actually ended up in a wilderness therapy program and then ended up also uh, finishing up my high school career up here in Montana, working on a cattle ranch um, in sort of an alternative therapeutic environment that was accessible at the time, but that sort of thing has sort of been strangled out from our system at this point in terms of mental health resources. But I had to spend a lot of time outside here, and that kind of got me reconnected with some of my outdoor roots of having grown up in a long-term Boy Scouting family um, and enjoying my time outside. And then when I went to university, I spent a year studying at Oxford um, and only had to go to tutorials once a week. And I just found that my mind was able to process information better when I was away from um, humans and our many, many, many trappings. So I would just load up my book and and such into my backpack and my ruck and I would go walk um, what I've now learned is are now known trails, but it was the Pembrokeshire Coast Path, the West Highland Way, walking the Peaks District and the Lake District. Um, and then when I came back to the U.S. and I finished university and was starting to feel the pressures to proceed on to graduate school, um, I decided instead to <laughs> run away to Alaska and live on a glacier and run sled dogs for the Alaskan Icefield Expeditions Company. And while I was up there, I heard about something called the Pacific Crest Trail and learned that long distance hiking is a community. And I was immediately interested and thought, well, that sounds impossible, 2,600 miles. Yeah, it, it would take a superhero to do that. And um, so, of course, decided that I should probably try. And so the Pacific Crest Trail was my first long distance, like knowing long distance through hike. And since then, um, I have hiked the Colorado Trail. I got to hike with One Seed Expeditions in Nepal, um, probably some other trails. But it was, yeah, those are it's sort of my entry and first couple of long distance trails. So how did you guys meet on the PCT? Was it right away? Was it kind of as you know, you were along, like were your starting dates even by each other? Like, um, I started late April, but no, I did not meet her until about 700 miles in. So right near past Kennedy Meadows as we were going up into the Sierra Nevadas. From my memory, we only spent like a day or two together. And then I ran into her again in Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite. And then I don't think we saw each other again after that. Yeah, for me, it was, we were in two kind of larger adjacent trail families and um, some neighborhoods. So I probably saw more of her footprints than her face. But for me at the time, and with the nature of my introduction to the outdoors, I still wasn't accustomed to there being so many women outdoors. And I was fascinated with her trail family because they were it was predominantly women and in my trail family there were uh, three of us and that was pretty exciting to me but then to be along with these ladies who would just um, so openly talk about 
what it is to live in a woman's body and what that is on the trail was um, kind of took me aback as I was still uh, recovering from a lot of um, constructs from my upbringing of what is appropriate for a woman to share about her experience or not. So I was like both horrified and fascinated um, following literally these women's footprints. And then, um, yeah, we did end, I think closer around the same time, but didn't actually that often overlap. It was more of my like curiosity about what else, you know, I was always told that I was really weird and, uh, felt kind of solitary as a woman being drawn to the outdoors or that we were in a minority and to be around people who were so comfortable and just like, yeah, of course I'm out here. Like, I don't have to have some special reason. Um, was probably what caught my attention about Neon's attitude towards through hiking. And so how did you then determine you were going to stay in touch and connect? Um, I'm not entirely certain. It just kind of happened. Yeah. From what I recall, it was, um, we became Facebook friends as you do. I was going back and forth because I was living in Utah at the time, still do. My sister was living in Colorado on the Front Range. And so she and I would meet up quite a bit and Fidget was like in between. So I would see, like I would stop through and try to visit people along the way and Fidget became one of those people that I would um, visit. And then she was talking about her plans and ideas for for moving forward and what she wanted to do with this, this journey of her odyssey. And so I would ask questions and yeah, we just kind of stayed in touch that way. And then when she was like, cause she was along the trail and I think we had been on some adventures and she had just done, we actually did the Colorado, the same trail, the same year as well. Um, just like didn't know it until we were done. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, we were able to to have her resupply me and then just continue asking questions, basically. Where did this idea, Fidget, come from of traversing the Americas and her odyssey? And, you know, what was that kernel, the seed that that sprouted in your mind? Well, it came from... Um sitting behind a dumpster outside of a Vietnamese restaurant in the industrial district of Kansas city. I was, I had finished the Pacific crest trail and there was very much the messaging of, okay, now you've had your adventure. So now you settle down and you behave and you do what you're supposed to. So I had gotten a job at the corporate offices and was beginning to climb the ladder and um, was pretty not happy having to like wear high heels and um, schedule bathroom breaks, which was not something my body was into after having been on trail. And I was trying to drive home from work one day and was caught in a traffic jam and um, was just like, I'm not doing this. And I pulled off and that was that parking lot was the first place that I could find a park. And it wasn't an area that was uh, safe or desirable to walk around and also since childhood, one of my greatest loves and escapes has been reading. And one of the books that I was, that was one of the texts that was carrying me away was Chris McDougall's Born to Run. And in that book, he mentions that the Sierra Madre Sosina Fell Range connects the longest chain of mountains in the world. And um, it was a pretty unique sensation in that moment to 
read that sentence and to know that I would be doing that, that I would be traversing that by, I just knew that I needed to traverse that. And um, kind of my first thought was, um, this is going to be exhausting. And them thinking it was interesting that that was like my first cogent thought about it is that it wasn't even a question or like an exceptional thing. Um, but I, I protected the, the seed of, or that, that ember, I think of it sometimes like trying to start a fire in, um, a rainstorm. And once you catch that first ember, you're very, uh, protective of it and you shelter it, um, until it's to a point of strength that it can withstand the winds of doubt and, um, yeah, people trying to, outsiders trying to douse it. <laughs> so in that space then, when did you feel comfortable sharing it with someone else to kind of say, all right, now that I have it spoken or written, mm -hmm. it, this is going to, you know, come forward and mm -hmm. and be something concrete. Yeah, I, I carried the intention pretty, um, I mean, it was, yeah simmering in my heart. And then the first person I chose to share it with, um, was someone who I regarded as safe, which was a deaf old man who I didn't know. <laughs> I had just given a talk at the local pizza hut to the seniors group in Smithville, Missouri. And afterwards, as they were filing out and I was standing by the door, this, uh, gentleman with overalls and his walker was going by and he asked like, what are you going to do next? And I said, I, think I'm going to walk across, walk the length of the Americas. And he goes, Oh, that's nice. And he flips me a $10 bill and then, you know, heads on out to the van. And then I took that $10 bill home and um, I got an envelope out. That's how I was doing my budgeting at the time. And I just wrote a um, big adventure fund on that envelope and put that $10 in there and was like, all right, well, somebody's invested. So now I've really got to show up for it. And then I took some time from there. I was pretty cautious and like who I would talk to about it um, as well as recognizing that I needed to set my life up in such a way um, that would facilitate me doing it. And one of those things was knowing that I would be facing challenges that I couldn't even fathom at that stage in my life. And so I was like, well, what's something, what's the next hardest thing besides like this obviously impossible walk, what would be like the next hardest thing for me to do? Um, to prove that I can stick through something that sucks. And so um, I got a desk job for four years and um, lived still pretty much like a dirt bag as cheaply as possible. And then just aggressively saved anything that I could um, by having, you know, fancy things like uh, a regular paycheck or um, paid time off, which was like when I did the Colorado trail, you know, I went into my boss and I was like, Hey, I told you when you hired me, I was going to hike this trail. And I think it'll take me like 28 days. And he goes, Oh, well, you only have two weeks of paid time off. And I was like, what's paid time off. And he was like, well, you only have two weeks of it. I was like, can I take unpaid time off? And he was like, I've never had anyone ask for unpaid time off. I'll have to check. So there's this confusion. And one of, one of those many, many moments that your hikers have of when you try to communicate your values to the outside world and the confusion that that generates. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, Neon, you were, I think, also at the point when Fidget talked to you about this idea, I think you also had 
some stuff going on or you were trying to maybe save or or how did you get I guess brought in so I don't recall exactly when she first mentioned it to me um she came up with the idea in late 2010 early 2011 and then 2013 was when I threw hike the CDT um and I wasn't sure because she was originally planning on starting I think in 2014 and I was not sure that I would be able to like have that kind of money saved but then life kind of intervened and she ended up tearing her ACL and having to get surgery and kind of taking a gouge out of her budget and so she had to push back her plans until um 2015 and that's like I was still expecting her to head out in 2014 and then she she ended up not at the end of that year and so that was why it took me until 2015 to commit because then it was like okay I do have some more time to save up have some more time to like plan and prepare mentally as much as I could um yeah and what was the first adventure or where was the first one that you were kind of as you were documenting of the route, where did you go first? Um, in terms of the Her Odyssey route? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we flew down to Santiago, Chile, where the amazing friend of a friend, Chris, um, received us and welcomed us. Probably one of like Neon's first adventures and getting to know South America and life along a fault line was um, waking up at night and to uh, what she thought was a train going by, but it was one of the many earthquakes that shakes she did. But then no, we spent a couple of weeks there in Santiago getting things set up. We had a lot of, or at least I'll admit to having carried a lot of American through hiker expectations um, into an environment where that's not actually the much of an option. Um, so, you know, we had gone down with a bounce box of like a whole trunk of extra gear and we're trying to figure out how to like mail resupplies, which isn't really an option without much of a mail system. Um, and particularly when we're going down literally past the end of the roads. So I'm from Santiago after a couple of weeks of like staging and planning, we then flew down to Ushuaia, Argentina. And from Ushuaia was essentially our first section of it. It was about 300 kilometers. And we sort of were regarding that as the testing grounds because it's not actually connected to the mainland. It was about 300 kilometers. Um, and we're going to like test gear and sort of this new partnership um, and how the plan pans out. And I would like to talk a little bit about partnership on trail because I know that's probably an aspect that has grown or changed and you know, shifted along the the way. So I think that's an interesting concept. Um, what I also found interesting when I was reading up on her odyssey was talking about not really going, and if I say this wrong, please, and I, I probably will, so please correct me, it, that you your goal was to listen, to hear, to gather the stories um, rather than to maybe speak you know, insert your own voice. So I want to touch on that and what that meant. That that arose from multiple points. Once again, 
one of the informing ones for me was a book, Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women, which when I was reading that while planning for this hike, um, sort of invigorated the spirit and what would turn out to be the soul of the journey. The part of my personal history that informed the listening component was that the reason I grew up in South America is that my family were missionaries. And while I believe that there was much of value and good intentions that we brought down there, I think one of the great opportunities that was missed is that we went down there with something to say and to tell people that there is a certain way to live and then you will have you know, a better shot at heaven while projecting this image of like, and hey, maybe you'll have like the same opportunities as white people and sort of this um, confused messaging that was going on when in fact there are many values and great wisdom in some of the more Latin or some of the Latino as well as indigenous approaches to things that I think we were missing running around trying to be white saviors. And so in a way, for me, this was an opportunity to, by the humblest means I could, to return to the people who had informed my upbringing and the whole way I see the world and to make an effort to hear what they had to say and to bring that message back to we, the tired and the rushed and the overly self-important of the first world. Mm-hmm. Um if you know i'm as you're saying that i'm thinking of like how nervous i would be in your shoes um and just for the fact of like how do i how can i share this message or how do i get that out there and keep it um i guess keep it as honest and as it was meant to be so how do you feel like you you've done that i guess and kind of been more of a conduit uh, versus, I guess you would say, um, translator? I don't know, maybe. I think any, both of those words are beautiful ones. And that's a very insightful question. It's encouraging to feel understood on this front. Yeah, it, it's a message that often misses. A person's heart has to be at a certain, in a certain place um, in order to be able to even fathom something like this. I guess the way I've done it is um, very, very imperfectly. And also being a person who is um, willing and prepared to live in an almost constant state of self-reflection. And that's where the walking actually has come in great for me and in service of how I think is that, you know, I can have these exchanges with people and then I walk in the company of um, just neon for four or five days. And I can speak my, my doubts and my opinions and my like unfounded, you know, thoughts about whatever anyone has to say. And I can let that process by the movement of my body and the flow of my soul. And then through that, those as well as by writing, writing is a um, very important way of letting it thread out of me. Sometimes I like to, I prefer to write by hand and there's something about generally I'll find I write in cursive and there's this sense of that this ball of thoughts is like a ball of yarn all tied up inside of me. And when I write, it spools out through the end of my pen to the paper. And um, so that I think writing and time to move slowly and an environment in which I can 
physically and verbally process in whatever way I need to without feeling hampered by needing to maintain images has been really the only way that I have been able to show up to that work in the capacity that I have. And so you mentioned about kind of when you first went down and that you were the American through hikers in the sense of like trying to to hike, but, you know, based with all of the things we had, the mail system that really wasn't set up for the, the resupplies, how long did it take you to kind of shed all of that or even just on the additional adventures you go on to because whether we like it or not when we are just in society you know it's that layer that you know keeps adding on to you so how do you guys shed it when you're walking or paddling or biking or whatever um it may be well i'm gonna defer this question to neon to unpack it i guess i just wanted to share the thought of it's not like a one and done. You don't just shed it. And then it's like, and now I do not become preoccupied with my daily mileage. It's a, it's an, it's an ongoing work, but yeah. How long did it take to start seeing it? Well, I'm, I'm pretty grateful that we did figure out that there wasn't much of a mail system. I think before even going down and still took, cause we could use the bus system um, to a point so we didn't take as much, but we still took more than we needed to down there and had this, like she said, a big, what do you call it? A trunk, trunk of stuff that was extra that we were shipping. Um, but we only ended up shipping it to like three or four places. And then um, that's actually kind of how we ended up meeting a lot of the ladies that we met along the way, which is super cool. Um, but to shed it, I feel like it wasn't completely ever shed mm -hmm. for me, at least like there were still those expectations and those disappointments, but it's like they got lower and lower. <laughs> we always joke that you have to just like lower your expectations so that you're not disappointed. <laughs> um, it became kind of our mantra for a bit, especially through like Bolivia. Um, I would say an early experience, I mean, it started, the lessons started pretty immediately. We're both just pretty hard-headed and slow learners, but I had expected to, like with trails in the U.S. where you land and then you're starting hiking within a day or two because you put everything together. But the Latin American system, particularly in the rural areas and towns, I mean, there's no such thing as store hours. There's no such thing as um, like a grocery store where you can also buy fuel. It's a matter of, you know, you go to the carniceria and then you go to the ferreteria and then you wait till the lady who runs the tienda has come home from visiting her nephew and the route is not laid out in front of you. It's a matter of you drink mate with this person who will then introduce you to that person and that person will drink mate with you and then their uncle comes down from moving the goats and then they'll introduce you to Theo and Theo knows the routes. And so that was another thing that was pretty quickly dispelled for us was the concept of a Nero day or even just a zero. Most of the towns we stopped in, it took two or three days. And I realized, you know, if I rolled in with my um, American expectations of efficiency and productivity, that we were all, we we're actually just alienating people. And by the time we were meeting these amazing women that Nian mentions, one of them actually taught us that there's a saying 
in um, Patagonia, el quien se apura en la Patagonia pierde el tiempo. So basically, if you try to hurry, you're just going to lose your time. And you actually end up alienated and missing out on that relationship because whereas to me, I'm like, oh, I don't have time for mate as well as mate gets you like really jacked up. And so the fact that you're supposed to like drink mate with all these people and then sit there and listen to them um, for hours was really hard. But yeah, we, we pretty quickly had to learn that actually the mate was a vetting process as well as are you prepared to let go of your expectations of how things are going to go and accept the path that is offered to you, even if it's not the one that you expected. So then that's the third thing I would say we had to drop is like thinking that the line drawn on the GPS was the route that we would be following it was a really a tough one for me to let go of. Did you meet other women who were doing the treks out there? Anyone that was, you know, on, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we did. We met um, an amazing woman named Stevie Anna, who did a really awesome horse packing journey of over a thousand miles because that's in, uh, through Argentina and that's a very deep cultural component. So she has this really amazing horseback riding journey. We were actually following in the steps of um, Deya, who she and a man named Greg had walked the length of South America in the early 2000s. And I had been following their blogs. And she's actually just come out with a film. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just well, it was two years ago that she worked with the film. Um, it's a film called The Story of Plastic. She's become a filmmaker since her trek. And um, it just won an Emmy for uh, documentary, super and, excited. Yeah, you see so much trash along the, out in the wilderness and outside of the towns around there because they don't have uh, the same sort of garbage disposal, just like, you know, someone else will go hide it for you so you don't have to um, consider the repercussions. Um, so yeah, you, you get to bear witness to the effect that we as humans are having and that's um, colored her component and perspective of it. And then another super awesome woman, um, her name is Mei Lin, um, and she's a Chilean. And so that's, it's particularly exceptional. She's one of our Her Story series, actually. Um, it's pretty exceptional for a Chilean woman to be interested in the outdoors. And she's a veterinarian, and she's a swimmer, and she's a bikepacker. And um, she's partnered with this uh, gentleman named Jan, and together they have created the Greater Patagonian Trail. Um, so they are out pack rafting and backpacking. And actually, the woman who opened up, I call him our, um, the Southern Cross, because that was the, um, an important constellation, uh, navigational constellation in the Southern Hemisphere. And it was the same number of women as who like, laid the tracks. Um, it was Estefania Cereguini. And she um, is a uh, Spaniard who's been... Um, in Argentina for some time. And she actually, she and her partner, Walter, created the Way Andina, which is an 800 kilometer um, concept of a trail um, along the Argentine side of the Andes. Um, and girl, I could go on. There are women down there doing all sorts of amazing things and just breaking down boundaries and opening up doors and then and holding that door for others. And, you know, I was thinking like, 
why aren't we talking more about that, you know, and talking more about that in, you know, here in the US as well. Um, why are we fixated on fastest known times and, you know, different things like that? It, it just seems from a trail hiking community, um, there's, there's so much more of um, that, that we're not digging into is, I guess what I mean. We've talked about that quite a bit and we're still kind of trying to figure out what, why the focus is on what it is on, because those are like generally just a bunch of like a very small group of the through hiking community or the, even just the outdoor community, you know, it's such a breadth of people that, um, yeah, we're not, we're not quite sure why it's so focused on that specific like niche one of my theories is that it's the um, siloing effect of social media mm. that many of these people, you know, I found these websites that they went to great efforts to make, but that were quite confusing to navigate because of the volume of information that they're attempting to impart. And so it was by reaching out via email to Estefania that she began to open those doors and make those personal introductions. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's like, you know, some, some of these folks don't even have social media accounts. Or if they do, um, they don't quite understand how to maneuver using them before the algorithms got into locking people out, as well as they only show people who are close to you or things that you've talked about. So if people haven't talked about Patagonia, then the phone doesn't know to tell you about it. And then the only press that has come out is about the um, Camino de Parques in Patagonia, which isn't even a through hike. And everybody saw it and got the misconception based on one news article that came out that, oh, that's the newest through hike and it's not even a hike. So um, I believe it's because we've built such an elaborate system around ourselves to keep whirling all of the information around ourselves for one. And then the second is that many of these people who are putting so much energy into these things don't really care about getting attention or notoriety. You know, they're doing it because they love it. And their interest is in protecting, is into deepening their understanding and protecting the interests of the environment and people um, who do make it out there. And, you know, I know just from talking to Jan about the Greater Patagonia Trail, there's actually a lot of concern about bringing too much attention from hikers who have a sense of entitlement, an exaggerated sense of entitlement. And we witnessed that a few times in terms of, you know, hikers, like, you know, a small lodge in the middle of nowhere chile and a hiker walks in and he wants to be he's free camping just off of the edge of the property he wants her to give him water for free he wants her to give him her wi-fi and not have to pay for it and because we've built such a system that you can do that at businesses in the u.s but down there it's it's a different thing and we're coming down and we're blitzing these trails and moving so fast and we don't even have time to like see these lessons or like to see the look of doubt on her face or like, dude, just buy, buy a soda or something. Like she doesn't, she's not asking for a lot, just something to support her business. But he just, we just take, we're so used to taking or have this concept of I'm owed trail magic because I'm doing something exceptional. And it's, uh, so there's also, I think some, reticence from the trail creators to invite that kind of presumptive attitude into these very vulnerable and um, remote communities. And so you mentioned her, is it her stories? Is, 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So what it, what is that exactly and how are, how how are you I guess sharing stories or getting others involved and you know it's becoming more than a singular or dual approach. Yeah. We joke about this is actually, you know, a hike of 10,000 mothers because there's a lot of, you know, we often get the question like, oh, like you're women out there, like, don't you feel more in danger? But it's honestly like almost every single other woman that we meet um, has a vested interest in um, protecting us as well as some men, actually, you know, they, they'll see us as their like sisters or their daughters and they want to um, afford that, that care um, and are they feel safer in extending it because while we are scary to them, you know, we're much larger than they are. We're wearing unfamiliar clothing. We have these strange backpacks on and the last white person with a backpack who came asking questions, you know, then got them to sign a document. And all of a sudden the river is dammed and their town is underwater or all of a sudden the mountain behind their house um, is being mined because it, it's taken. Right. Um so there were some areas where we weren't terribly welcomed. Um, and we learned that respecting that was actually also a very important um, aspect of respect. Her stories also compiling others and kind of, uh, I guess, making it, you know, the community, I guess, how has it shifted into a community? Yeah. Um, so her story is actually a series that we've run on our website. Like if you type in, to Google in quotes like her odyssey and then her story. It's a series of stories of like inspiring, powerful women who bucked the norm ranging from, you know, a woman who left a lifetime abusive husband to artists, to a woman, like the only woman like brewing beer in Patagonia, um, advocates, um, horse women, just, yeah, anybody, any woman with a story that inspired, and it actually started with, before I'd even started, I met a hairdresser, and I was talking about, you know, this journey, and she's like, oh, I can't understand that at all, and then she started talking passionately about how she loved styling hair and making women feel beautiful and strong and empowered, and I was like, girl, we're talking about the same thing. We just have different floors that we play. I happen to be, like, out in the dirt, and you are in a salon, but we're trying to do the same thing. And it's actually been a huge source of frustration and a draw on my personal energy of having been told, you know, by led by the term social media to think that building this community would be done on social media platforms and feeling really um, not empowered or uh, um, having our voice amplified by that. So in terms of shifting how we build that community, for one, we're cultivating a closer community in our Patreon community. They're folks who are invested and who we let kind of see the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Another large one that we're learning is just sharing the stories like this, like getting to be on the podcast here talking to you right now and whoever is listening is like, that's so exciting. And it's a very honest way for people who would never otherwise meet to get to communicate and then on a more personal level, it's the people who we get to meet along the way, like along the Great Divide Trail this year has been like. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, that. And and it's interesting because I think you guys started like right after the border opened, right? Like you you just were you planning it for a while and just then got because of COVID and the restrictions that you 
you got kind of shut shut out or was it one of those hey there's a an opportunity we're just going to seize it now so we were in to like start at the beginning of covid we were actually bike packing across mexico as part of our journey or of non-motorized means to hit like trying to do the central america portion of our journey and um then in mid to late march we got a notification from the state department that was like come back to the u.s or prepare to shelter in place for an indefinite amount of time and so we um not knowing what was going to happen and that kind of thing we did come back to the u.s um also being a bit them seeing it as like a white person's disease seeing COVID as a white person's disease we didn't we were uncertain if things would change in the realm of safety and um so we came back and that was late march and then so actually we were planning on trying to do the portion of the the great divide trail last summer so summer of 2020 was our original idea and we were talking with a friend who wanted to come join us and so she and fidget and i all had some meetings and then like fidget was up here in montana and um so i came up to montana in july because we were like okay maybe the border is going to open and then um we did like a backpacking trip in the bob to kind of like do a shakedown of some sort and then um came back out and the border was not open <laughs> and we were not uh we did not see the opportunity like the opportunity had passed by the end of july because then once you get into the end of august with the, the great divide trail as far north as it goes you can't really go that late um into those those realms of of canada and still expect to like cover ground or anything uh without weather coming winter basically having an opportunity to come in at like any second. And so we put it off until this year and just kind of worked and wrote and tried to appease ourselves through COVID. And then um, this year we, yeah, we went in right as the border opened because we did not know how long our opportunity was going to last. And so the Great Divide Trail, it starts basically where the CDT ends Yes. Is that okay so at the border so yeah. uh in in what city is that it starts in waterton provincial park okay provincial national mm -hmm. oh, provincial park and goes north up towards um banff national park and then up through jasper national park cutting in and out of um other provincial parks and other um open kind of like what would be considered probably BLM land in the U.S. up through their their open land, and it's uh, is it about seven hundred miles kilometers? Trying to remember what the the total length is. One of the things that we do is when we travel in other countries, we measure we try to measure in their units. So I know that in kilometers, kilometers it's just over eleven 1 hundred kilometers. Okay. There are ample options of all 
alts and sometimes those alts are actually more of a primary so um it can be any number of, of lengths probably between like 1100 and 1300 kilometers or so you started and uh what frame of mind were you in well to clarify um also we went against the grain with this trail actually we hiked it we did an autumn southbound hike because you know, the northern stretches um when when winter comes um he comes in hard and big and like in big dumps um so we started actually we got to start at the northern of the three different ending points of the trail the three different options of ending points we got to begin up at Kakwa lake which is a really difficult to access point and it's only because of Canada and actually our buddy little buddha that we were able to get up to that point and then hike that trail southbound i would say for me fidget fidget um my point of my frame of mind was really tough because i had spent that entire previous summer right up here along the high line of montana like literally looking up at canada and with each month that they extended the closure rather than giving any um plan it was each month. Well, we'll tell you next month. We'll tell you next month. We'll tell you next month. And so somehow I was like keeping the spark of hope alive and then just dragging it along for a year and a half. Um, so I spent time literally running up and down the roads here up to the border, looking at it, yearning to be across. Um, and after that much buildup, which was helpful to check it because I'm actually, we're 20 miles away from like, where Chief Joseph spoke those words, the immortal words of like, from where the sun now stands, we shall fight no more. And I'm like, oh, you poor little girl, like you don't get to go on your hiking trip when you want to versus um, <laughs> what the Nez Perce were against, up against their holy cow. So like a little bit of an ego check there. So there was a lot of anticipation built along with a lot of humility and a lot of um, bruised dreaming and ego which all amounted to something akin to desperation to get going. And um, also awareness of having this journey push me so deep into my body for so long of knowing that that is a very dangerous place to make decisions as a through hiker. And then to do the work to verbalize that to my hiking partner um, so that she can know what's going on as well as in her own way, help check and balance that sort of, I need to go for my own mental health versus the sort of long-term and survival thinking that we would need in order to actually complete the trail. So I was in a pretty, uh, keyed up, um, and just like, we're all hungry for it. State of mind. So Neon, then how did that affect you? Or where, where were you at? Um, for me, the amount of socialization that we did right before starting the Great Divide Trail was like way more than I'm used to. I'm not a very social person. And so staying at people's houses and then like going into cars with people um, and having to cross the border. And I was also a little bit like I had gotten sick right before we started. Um, and so thankfully our hosts were kind enough to let us extend our stay a little bit um, for like another day or two so that I could get better. Um, so I was pretty disoriented heading up there so much so that like I forgot 
a couple of things and thankfully it was covered but um that could have been pretty bad had we not been going up there with a, a guy who was like super awesome and like willing to help us out in the way that he did yeah so i was just pretty discombobulated how long did it take you guys to then you know find your balance for me neon um to find my like to be become undiscombobulated it probably took like less than a day to find my balance i feel like it took a few weeks yeah for me it i would say it took me probably until jasper's about 12 days to begin to recombobulate and then it was about three weeks before I noticed or noted in my pocket notebook um, that I was beginning to feel in the moment again. Um, that it, it's, it's those moments where it's, there's no thought or otherness or expectation when you're just moving at the speed that your body does in the terrain that it's in. It took me several weeks to be able to find that place, which is pretty common for me on a through hike, actually. And with this one, I, I you know, we're both quite experienced and have some some miles under our feet. But uh, starting on the north end, we definitely, uh, you know, Canadians have this delightful and dangerous way of understating things. And um, as they put it, it's like, we are dropping you in the deep end, but we know that you know how to deal with that. Um, Unfortunately, it's like really the only thing we know know is um, that when we're starting to, you don't ever tow the line. You know, I think again on the U.S. trails, it's like you can like tow that line a lot more because you know that if you have to hit your inreach, someone's going to show up or you know that you're following the trail. So you can like push fast through the day to get into the next town or to get to the next campsite. But when you don't have any of those assurances around you or any of that um, structure to, to lean on, you need to hedge your bets a lot more than you usually would, as well as not push yourself to your full capacity. You need to be able to pull yourself up short, which is also really hard as a American trained through hiker to do. But those first weeks was, you know, realizing, okay, we're actually only going to cover 24 or 25 kilometers a day through bogs and willows and straight up and down mountains. Um, so it was a pretty wonderful um, slap in the face of an ego check those first couple of uh, toenail shedding, leg bruising weeks. And does your hiking partnership afford you the luxury of like kind of giving yourselves that space or, you know, to work it out? Or are you kind of leaning into each other to also work those things through? I think we do both definitely depends like i know that we've leaned on each other at times of struggle um and then also been at this point like we know each other well enough to either offer or like recognize it and be like hey you're looking like kind of tired do you want to eat or like even like i know both of us have done this where we notice the other person is getting hungry and so we'll be like oh i'm hungry let's eat because we know that the other person will like push them or like might be hangry and like kind of 
bite back when you're like, you look hungry. Cause then they'd be like, no, I'm not. Everything's fine. <laughs> and then like 20 minutes later, be like, I need to eat something right now. Yeah. So we, we actually did talk about that on the great divide trail, how we're grateful that we were like to be dropped in the deep end, but then like have a hiking partner that we have hiked with enough that we can still like get like cover ground and get stuff done and communicate effectively enough to be able to like let the other know either by communicating it verbally or physically that we're like doing all right or not doing all right or like want to sleep in 30 minutes that day or like are not interested in hiking into the night (laughs) Um, or want to stop at this campground. Yeah. So I know with the Great Divide Trail, and I don't know how it was with this uh, season, but there's permitting or camping and, and those scenarios. Did you have all of that laid out? Or, uh, you know, were you, as you went along, uh, figuring things out? Um, did, did that put any damper, I guess, on your, your hike? We were unable to lay it out because much of the national, because as Nian was explaining, I mean, you go through provincial parks, you go through, um, you know, national parks, you go through a variety of, of places that all have different permitting processes. Um, and much of their national park permitting is done online on Parks Canada. And so you're not, A, you're not able at that, we were not able as Americans at the time to even book anything. Um, It opens up on January 1st and everybody's just there and, you know, a few people get the spots. And so that wasn't even available to Americans during the time of COVID because it, it wasn't open to us. So we were not able to get those things in advance the way that we were able to navigate it was because we were coming later in the season, there was more availability as opposed to a high season when everything is booked, as well as we had, we had the good fortune of being out there doing really crummy weather. And so we would be able to post up with our friends in the towns and I would wait until around 11 AM um, of a day that's just at a total downpour. And then, pop on to the website. And of course people have canceled their reservations for the next day at Assiniboine. And then we got the reservation and then we're able to book the miles up and over the passes. So yeah, the, the permitting is an issue that, you know, the Great Divide Trail Association is facing. There is not um, allowance or comprehension. There's not much allowance or comprehension for through hikers in the park system. Some of the rangers do understand. They had two particularly wonderful encounters that where I was just astounded with how much they knew about us and our value systems and um, helped to facilitate um, getting permits and as well as needing to be able to cover ground. Because that was the second thing. With the website, even if you try to book it in advance, if you try to book a through hikers day, then the inter- the website just blocks you and says, no, you can't walk that. You can't cover that mileage in a day. So the through hikers who the Canadians who had been able to book their permits, they're getting in their camps at like 1.30 or 2 p.m. and couldn't go on. So I am concerned as I watch the United States move towards, you know, rep.gov and privatizing this. All of a sudden, you know, anyone who 
exists and lives outside the norm, like many through hikers do, there's not allowances. There's no wiggle room. You don't get to stand there with a ranger like I did on the CDT multiple times. And they're like, you know, in Glacier, there was no permits. And they're like, but we'll throw you on this other through hikers permit because we know you don't take up much space. Or going into Yellowstone, they're like, yeah, like it's not going to let you like have more than 12 miles a day, but we know you're through hikers and then they can override the system for you. So that's one of the things like linking it back to communities that you stand there face to face with someone who's, you know, trying to protect nature and people against our own like worst tendency. And the system is built to not allow that. But um, if you can stand in front of them and have that conversation, they'll see and they can make allowance. And, you know, the Internet does not do that. And there's a difference, I think, like you're mentioning someone that's there, uh, maybe they're managing it, but they're on the land it's not in a corporate office somewhere, you know? So I think there's a difference between standing, like you said, face-to-face with that ranger and them understanding your goals and then understanding the land and what it can support or not support. Um, Mm -hmm. You said that the Great Divide Trail Association, you'd mentioned them. Did you, um, were they supportive? Hugely. They are such a cool coalition of, just like amazing gritty mountain people and you know one person just retired from their board who was one of the original six um calamity or um, her name is mary jane but they call her like calamity mary jane um you know who coordinated the food off of 400 bucks a month for like five hungry young people who were sitting all day out in the bush creating this trail and she's been in it Um, Or like Jenny, who really helped us, who was another one of the originals um, who created that trail. Yeah, they're absolutely showing up for the trail as well as, you know, we also got to see, we got to present actually at the Great Divide Trail Association's annual meeting. And we got to see sort of the handing of the baton as, um, you know, Calamity Mary Jane stepped down and actually handed her position, went to a woman who we had seen on Gut Hook hiking just uh the year i think before us um so to get to witness you know sort of that first round and to have like a sense of them passing the torch on to us in terms of you know fight fight for it you know hold space for those outside like stand by the land stand by one another um stand by health and relationship um it was a really, you know, impactful thing. And then, you know, it wasn't hurt at all by the fact that, um, you know, they helped us at Canadug as a board member and helped us get to that trailhead and then to get to sections of the trail where they were just so proud of the work they'd done of like getting the, the, <laughs> we started calling these things uh, Canadian switchbacks where it's just sort of the trail just wiggles, but still goes straight up the mountains. So it, it's exhausting, but like with all that they have learned in terms of trail building, they're really proud of this part on section B, uh, the high rocks trail, you know, they had built gorgeous, I mean, gorgeous switchbacks into these mountain sides. Um, and they take you through large forest. And, um, so to see that they're an organization that are very much on the ground as well as connected to the original idea of it, um, and, you know, um, was a, a really special experience. And I can't say enough about them and what they're trying to do out there. So um, on the trail itself and in the 
the areas you traverse, were there any special places that, you know, kind of you held a little closer or, um, you know, areas of the trail that spoke to you? Um, you know, did, did you feel any of that? For me, Fidget, um, along Michelle Lakes was special. Uh, section B to me was special because in that section, there's both, you know, the original area that they had begun in the 1970s to envision this dream, as well as some of the most recent trail work that has been done out there literally just this summer, you know, weeks before we were walking through. So to have to know and to get to have that background of the, the experience um, was awesome and uh, very impactful. And then the third place I would say that was really special to me was any time that um, we stood witness in the presence of grizzly bears was really, really special for me. I don't know that I could pick just one area, like the whole diversity of the trail is, is pretty unique in and of itself um, to have the, the like, you're kind of tucking up north towards the Arctic. And so you have like kind of that shift in between the, the overgrown areas and then the, the, you're going along the divide. So there are also these like huge rock mountains that jut out of everything. And they're also generally draped in glaciers, um, which each and every glacier when it shows itself to you is like a unique and kind of, um, beautiful experience so i don't know that i'd be able to choose just one i think um so every adventure as you're going along you know this journey across the americas have uh, you know added to the narrative to to the the story how do you feel this latest one is threaded in for me i feel like it's kind of like a re um enforcement of kind of like our thoughts and beliefs already um just kind of like reminding us that like nature is generally in control um and to respect that as well as like this journey that we are personally on is as much about the people as it is about covering the ground um, to get through to more people and like get to see what we are so very privileged to get to see. For me, Fidget, one of the lessons that is beginning to distill from this experience of the Great Divide Trail section is recognizing that there is a very particular sort of gen spirit of generosity in the people who live in the higher latitudes Honestly, I haven't encountered generosity like we have since Patagonia. I mean, we've met wonderful people and we've had great experiences, I believe, perhaps in the areas where there's just higher concentration of people, something, something fades. Um, and then just in talking to, to, you know, the people of Canada and then talking about some of the same issues as the Patagonians, just from as silly and light as like, you know, your road sinks into the bog. So you like build it up with wood to 
weird political campaigns against breastfeeding to um, damming and mining infrastructure, taking advantage of lower population areas in order to push their own interests over the heads and the voices of the people who know, advocate and care for that land to having grown up in towns where there were not roads, like where there's living memory of, oh yeah, I remember when the road was put in um, or towns where there's actually a landing strip before there was a road. And so just some of those unique components in terms of the particular challenges that one faces when they live um, just over the, the tip of the of the horizon line for most of us. Um, and then the attitude of just absolute, like I, of people just going so far above and beyond to care for us and to facilitate us in what we were doing when they face so much in their own lives. Um, it was really, really humbling and inspiring. Yeah. I think people that I find are most generous have been to, to me, uh, really have the least mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, you know, at least in kind of material things, but the most, you know, from the heart and from giving. So, so I definitely so. understand. Yeah. So what's next for you both? I know you're kind of still decompressing. Um, so you have a, at least, you know, a little bit of time to just, you know, let that all sink in. Um, but but is there anything on on the horizon? Yeah. So you're actually catching us in the middle of our decompression session, which in terms of our partnership is one of the things that we've built in to keep it strong over the years. You know, when we're on trail, we do a daily check-in with one another of just, it's a safe space for each to speak her own truth. About once a month, we try to, you know, set aside some time over food to set goals and expectations for the month ahead. And then after each segment that we do, we set aside two or three days of time just with each other. Um, and so this time um, we are laying out, actually it's kind of difficult, uh, dual plans of, we have about 3,500 kilometers of Central America that we have yet to clean up. So we're trying right now to assess the safety in that area and whether the people are ready um, to have adventure tourism come back because it will involve going through a lot of um, indigenous territory that have suffered the worst as well as been impugned upon the greatest um, over the last few years. So if those assessments come back um, as favorable, then our objective there would be to return to Aguascalientes, Mexico in January of 2022 and to get back on our bikes and to bike pack south um, down through Guatemala, Honduras, um, possibly El Salvador, um, and then back down to Nicaragua, to Lake Nicaragua, where the we had paddled, because we had actually kayaked from Colombia to Nicaragua on this journey. So we'll probably reconnect our bikepacking leg to our paddling leg, and then that would clean up, that would connect our whole, having walked across South America, having paddled, the southern part of Central America and then having bike packed Mexico and the northern part of Central America back to the United States. Um, and then our next leg would begin probably around um, maybe late May or June 
of 2022 when we would return to Jasper and put in at the Athabasca River and paddle the Arctic drainage about just over 4,000 kilometers north out past. I still can't nail down how to say this uh, name, but um, Tuktoyatuk, um, just like out there on the Delta going into the Arctic, which has, you know, our mission of this journey has been to travel the length of the Americas by human powered and connect the story of the land and its inhabitants. And so with those two segments, if we get to complete those in 2022, that will complete our traverse of the Americas. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, wow. I, I'm really looking forward to, fo uh, to following you guys next year and seeing <laughs> what happens. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's been so great to chat with both of you today. And I, I feel like I could talk with you all night and hear your stories and talk about the different adventures. But I'm also very, very cognizant of, uh, of this, of your time. And so I, I appreciate uh, you taking time out of your post uh, adventure session here with with each other to to let me in and to have of course, me. Lori. That's part of, I mean, that's as much, that's as much of a part of this journey as the actual movement, if not more of it, you know, the movement is the, the, the body of it, but getting to connect with understanding and compassionate souls is the spirit that keeps that body moving. So actually, yeah, that batches. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Fidget and Neon for sharing her odyssey with me and the listeners and how you are traversing across the Americas and the stories that you are hearing and weaving together through the journey. Um, it's a pretty amazing adventure that you're having. If you would like to connect with Fidget and Neon, please check the show notes. I have links to the website and also to social media so that you can follow their adventures. And as well, if you want to connect with me, you can email me hikepodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Hike Podcast. So until next time, see you on the trail.